Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast, summer series, and I'm your host, Andrew Pryor. Enchanté. Fabulously Delicious is the podcast that brings you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, a French dish, an ingredient or French cooking cuisine technique, and we learn about it from a special guest who's an expert on that topic. My guests are all about French food. Either they cook it, they produce it, talk right or photograph it, but above all, they love it. This week, it's all about wine in France, and in particular, wines from the Burgundy region. Preston Moore was a fabulous guest in Series 1. He told us everything we needed to know about Burgundy wines, and it was great hearing from someone that is so knowledgeable on Le Vin, or Le Vin as we call it here in France. Then, in the second half, we will revisit the episode on my favourite wine of the year, the Nouveau Beaujolais, which is so special in France, there's even a day to celebrate its arrival in stores every year. So, sit back, grab a glass of wine, or if you're listening whilst you're travelling on your way to work, then turn up the volume, as you're in for a fabulous episode of Fabulously Delicious, the French Food Podcast, episode two of our summer of 2022. That's correct. Bon app and enjoy Burgundy Wines with Preston Moore. Preston, welcome to Fabulously Delicious. Hello, thanks for having me. Getting into wines, and in particular Burgundy wines, uh, for us foodies, wine novices, I just like to cook and drink uh, a nice wine. I'm not an expert in wine at all. What uh, makes Burgundy wine stand out from all the other wines in France? Great question. I think that Burgundy is all about finesse and elegance. And there are only two main grape varieties in Burgundy, Pinot Noir for reds and Chardonnay for whites. So they're perhaps, you know, the two most famous grapes throughout the world now, but they come, they both originate from Burgundy and they both excel in that climate and soil there. To me, it's the only place in the world for these grapes. I mean, yes, I've had great Chardonnays from other places and great Pinot Noirs from other places, but if you really want to try the unadulterated version of these grapes that have now become world famous, it's all about Burgundy. So there's that. And I think that Burgundy is also extremely complex it's kind of a bit of an insider's world because you really need to understand it before you can just enjoy the wines. You know, they're delicious, but they're not exactly the most, um, especially the reds, are not exactly always easy to like. I think that uh, if you give them to somebody from Australia or America, they might think, oh, this is kind of thin and weak and light in color. What's wrong with it? Uh, whereas that's what I like about them is they're light, they're digestible, they're they're elegant and they're not going to knock your socks off like you know they're not overly alcoholic they're very much about they're just in line with what i like in wines which is mineral and dry and crisp whites and lovely and fresh soft reds without too much alcohol right and so we hear the word mentioned often by wine um, experts and also food producers in France, the word terroir, and excuse my French because uh, I speak French with an Australian accent. For those that don't know, what does the word terroir mean? And then also, what is the terroir of 
Burgundy. Terroir really is a very French concept, and I always say it is the taste of a place. It's the taste of wherever that product comes from. So whether it's wine or butter or cream or cheese or meat, what it is is it's the accumulation of the natural factors that influence the way that something tastes. And there's also one thing that's not really necessarily natural that influences terroir, and that's tradition. And most people don't think about that, and that terroir is actually driven by the traditions of the people that have been living in these places for a very long time. But it's, I would say, 90% natural and 10% human-influenced. Um, and so terroir is, if you think about it this way, if we grow Chardonnay in Burgundy and we grow that same grape in California and we grow the other same grape in Australia, those, that same variety will taste three different ways because of the terroir, because each of those three locations has a different climate, a different soil, different exposition to the sun, different wind patterns, different growing cycles, etc. And that's really what terroir is. And Burgundy, I would say the terroir there is far too complex to even sum up in, you know, one book. Um, you've, you have to study it for your entire life to understand it. Because of ge geology over hundreds and hundreds of millions of years, it's, it's created a very complex terroir with microclimates and different types of soil underneath um, the vines. And that's really what makes Burgundy somewhere you can truly spend your entire kind of drinking career studying and understanding and then realize, hey, actually, I've only just scratched the surface of this place. It wouldn't be a bad career, though. No. Drinking your way through trying to understand the terror of uh, Burgundy. Sounds good to me. <laughs> An another term uh, for us novices that um, we would come across, and this is, again, something from my understanding that's also about food and wine, is AOC. And apparently Burgundy has over or has about 100 vineyards, AOC vineyards, which is quite high. What is AOC and why does Burgundy have so many? AOC stands for Appellation d'Origine Contrôlé, which means controlled place of origin. So it means that an AOC is a designated demarcated place on the map that can produce a certain wine that can be labeled in a certain fashion. So a good example of this would be, uh, for example, maybe outside of the wine world, it's a bit easier to think about this using a cheese, uh, something like um, let me come up with a good example of one that everybody will understand, like a Roquefort. Everyone's probably had Roquefort cheese. It's, this is the same rule that applies to our wines in France. We have it for cheeses as well. And that Roquefort has to come from a specific place. It has to come from sheep's milk. It has to be aged a certain amount of time. It has to really ab abide by a whole list of rules and regulations to be called Roquefort. So Roquefort is not only a name of a cheese, but it's a name of a way of making cheese. It's almost like a brand where you can come to expect a certain quality from any Roquefort, even though there are many producers of Roquefort, they all follow those same rules. And so that it's a guarantee of quality and of origin and of provenance and really of of really of, of go back to that quality. And so all of those AOCs in Burgundy are just that, is they're saying, 
We've only got these two grape varieties to work with, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but in these 100 plus AOCs, these wine grapes will express themselves differently to the point of where we need to give ourselves different names from our neighbors to differentiate ourselves. I've done tours of uh, Dijon and Lyon, and in researching them, I came across this fabulous abbey, and um, it had a wonderful restaurant in the cellars. They did a specialty of Boeuf Bourguignon uh, as part of a menu. And the entree starter, and I'm actually known for my Boeuf Bourguignon um, on Cooking Fabulously. It's one of my most popular episodes, if anyone wants to head over to YouTube to watch that. Uh, but um, my French neighbours have all said that my Boeuf Bourguignon is the best they've ever had, which is a high compliment from them. Indeed. The, what I found fabulous at this restaurant was that the starter, or entree as we call it in um, in Australia, uh, but starter in, in the US, is um, a poached egg served in the source of the Bourguignon. What other uh, specialties from the Burgun Burgundy region are there revolved around food and wine? Yeah, there's so many. What you've just spoke about, oeuf moret, is so delicious. If you've never if you've never tried making it, it, you should all try. And you can kind of do a cheat. You don't necessarily need to make a boeuf bourguignon, but you just need to have some good beef stock or something else. In, and there's lots of recipes online. But yeah, it's delicious. Um, it's a, it, Burgundy is actually a very cool region, very cold in the winter. And so the food there is, tends to be very hearty. So dishes like boeuf bourguignon, the stews and these long cooked dishes are very traditional and common. Uh, there's a, another starter entree that's um, quite famous there, which is a, uh, it's called a jambon persillet, which is a ham. It's like a pressed ham that's set in gelatin with parsley, and it's very old-fashioned in French. You know, it's kind of out of fashion. The young people don't like this type of food anymore. Uh, but it's absolutely delicious. It's served cold, usually with a salad before before dinner. Um, so that's another very common one. Um, there's some great cheeses from Burgundy as well. Uh, typically, they are traditionally they're washed rind or strong cheeses that have been washed with alcohol. As a byproduct of winemaking, they had you know, grappa, what essentially is grappa, which we call in French mar, M-A-R-C. Uh, and that was an offshoot of, of making wine. They could re-ferment the skins um, of that those grapes they had uh, just made into wine, and they could then make a, an alcohol. And they used that alcohol to wash the rinds of the cheeses. And in doing so, it would protect the cheese, but also would add an extra layer of flavor. So cheeses like Epoisse, which is probably the most famous from Burgundy, uh, that's a washed rind cheese. It's washed with that that burgundy um, liqueur, that uh, like uh, spirit. You know, it's a it's a hard alcohol that they wash the cheese with. And there's that. Yeah, there's just so many things, um, and it's a great place to eat. I mean, Lyon has its uh, bouchons. Uh, you get the cassis. You've got the mustard from Dijon. I mean, really, you could just stay in the region uh, of Burgundy and. Um, and spend a lifetime exploring French food and wine just there. You sure could. And you're right between the Auvergne, which is to the west of Burgundy, which is, has this incredible volcanic soil that grows a lot of different produce, things like the lentils from Puy, et cetera. It's not very far away. Then in, over to the right on the east side of Burgundy, you have the Alps. So you have all these gorgeous mountain cheeses only an hour away. You're, you can be in the Jura where they make Comte. 
And then driving a couple hours south, you're already transform transforming into the more Mediterranean climate and you can get all, everything you need from the south, all the peppers and onions and tomatoes. And so you're right in the heart and you're really in a great spot to get get good produce. What tips can you give the listeners to how to pair a wine or specifically burgundy wine, but any wines really with food? I think that you should first just forget about all this intimidation of food and wine pairing. If you want to drink a red wine with a fish or white wine with meat, I don't care. Just drink wine is what I have to say. Drink good food, eat good, eat good food and drink good wine. Uh, and that's it. Um, but I would say the, the quickest thing to think about is pair like with like, match the intensity of the food with the intensity of the wine. So lighter, more delicate foods should go with more delicate wines and fuller, richer, heavier dishes should go with heavier, full-bodied wines. And that's it. Just like with like. And that's the best way to go. But don't overthink it. You know, a wine, like you've mentioned, uh, Beaujolais, for example, will go with almost any dish. It's a, it's a perfect wine for anything you're eating. It's a good aperitif even before dinner. It's a good food wine with, um, you know, meats or even with those fish. And I mean, you can drill, literally drink a lot of burgundy reds with just about anything. Is it different to pairing wine to drink than it is to cooking with wine? Uh, I think that the ultimate rule is you should never cook with a wine that you wouldn't drink. Mm -hmm. That being said, I don't cook with 30 or 40 euro bottles of wine. I'll always have a cheaper wine that I wouldn't mind drinking that I usually do drink while I'm cooking. Uh, and I cook a lot more, I would say, with white wine than I do with red wine. Uh, and that's just because it tends to go better in, you know, in what I cook and in sauces and stuff and deglazing pans and stuff. Um, I also recommend for people, if you're interested in cooking with wine, but you don't have any wine around, I always have white vermouth in the fridge, uh, which is so great and it keeps forever. And then you, you always have something to add into a sauce or, you know, to deglaze a pan. And it's actually based on wine. You know, what ver, vermouth is wine-based um, and has aromatics and things. And it's a great thing to have around. You can also freeze wine if you have leftover wine, which is never a problem in my house. But you can freeze it into ice cube trays and have those in your freezer and have those just pop in the, the pan when you're finished. Uh, but I think the rules are the same. Just pair like with like, you know, don't want a wine to cook with that's too overpowering. I think it, it's, it'd be interesting to, to know, Andrew, do you use a Burgundy wine in your Boeuf Bourguignon? Yes. Well, when I'm in France, I do, yes. I okay. specifically will go and find one. Uh, just, I don't know, there's something romantic uh, in the notion about that. I was just curious, yeah, because I think Burgundy, unfortunately, has become a very expensive wine too, and it does... Play if you're going to make a Boeuf Bourguignon, you're using an entire bottle or almost a whole yes. bottle. I mean that can be quite costly. Mm. Uh, and so I was just curious <laughs> if you were it's using not a, cheap a Burgundy. Experience coming to dinner at my yes. house. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, then please share it around with your friends, colleagues, and family. French food is wonderful, but so is these chats with lovers of French food and can be enjoyed by any foodie, no matter what their preference for cuisine is. So subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. A five-star one would be great. Merci beaucoup and bon app. 
I actually, I listened to you on another podcast and I got some great tips from you about the price of wine and what should be looking for price-wise if you just want a, a nice wine to, you know, to have, enjoy with your meal. Yeah, you don't need to spend a fortune. And I think that um, popular culture kind of tells people or convinces people that you do need to spend a lot of money to have a good wine, but it's not the case. There's some great winemakers doing excellent wines that are everyday drinking wines for 8, 10, 12 euros a bottle. Here in France, I'm speaking of, of course, these are always more expensive in America or in Australia, etc., unfortunately. But here in France, I would say spend, yes, definitely more than 8 or 10 euros if you can, uh, because 3 euros of that wine bottle's price, regardless, is just the cork, the bottle, the shipping, the label, the tax, etc., so if you are buying a three or four euro bottles, a bottle of wine, what you're getting inside is 20 or 30 cents worth. You know, it's very, very low. Uh, whereas if you spend eight, 10, 12 euros, you're already tripling your quantity or your quality level of, of wine in that bottle. Um, I think for me, I, as the older I've gotten, the, the less I've st- I drink now, actually. And so I prefer to spend a bit more on a nice bottle and have and I don't drink wine every day anymore, whereas I you probably used to in my youth. And I would rather spend a little bit more on the weekends or leading up to the weekend and have a nicer bottle on Thursday and Friday. And really, with restaurants having been closed for a year and a half, too, it's it's considerable to, well, to go to a restaurant and spend, when you do buy a 50 or 60 euro bottle of wine at a restaurant, you know, that restaurant probably paid 8 or 10 euros cost price for that wine. So you should spend 50 or 60 on a bottle at home and you're, you're just having a you know, grand bottle. Um, if I come to France from overseas and I'm visiting and doing wine tastings and things like that, should I be buying a whole lot of wine and getting it shipped back home or should I just be learning from that experience and, buy, and going back home and buying the wine from my local retailer? I think that's a great question. I would recommend always look going to your local retailer, regardless of where you are, and buying local wines as well. I drink French wine because I'm in France. If I were living in Germany, I'd drink German wines, or if I was in Spain, of course, yes, you could treat yourself to a bottle of champagne or something from more exotic from somewhere else, but I don't drink Australian wines or American wines here because, well, they have to be shipped over here. It has a carbon footprint. I also, I think that local foods go better with the local wines too. So if you're back in Australia, you should drink Australian wine with Australian meat and Australian vegetables and everything that you can get locally. That's my, uh, my view. But definitely French wine is my favorite. So I think even if I ever did leave France, I would still buy French wine in some capacity. But I wouldn't recommend shipping wine home. Um, certainly not for the Australians listening because you have these customs duties that are quite high if you do bring wine back or ship it back. Um, but um, other countries like America, we can ship very easily. We ship, for example, Chateau de Pomar, where I work. We ship our wines all throughout the world. In America, it's very easy to get our wines shipped um, and there's no customs duties or taxes or anything. Um, so I think I would yeah, prioritize local merchants, but treat yourself to something nice and imported every once in a while. When you're trying wines as a as a non-expert like myself, um, it can be a bit intimidating, this whole sort of tasting process, and there's a bucket there that I'm supposed to spit it in, which 
I don't really like the idea of. I prefer to drink the wine. What what am I supposed to be doing there when I'm tasting wines? There's all this sort of slurpiness going and some people sort of, you know, suck up air into it. What am I supposed to be doing and what am I supposed to be looking for? When you're tasting a wine, the first thing you should ask yourself is, do I like this wine? <laughs> and that's really all you need to know. Uh, but there are all these things we go through as wine professionals and people at home can do this as well. It's just you look, you smell, and then you taste. Those are the three steps. We eat with our eyes or we drink with our eyes as well. So the, the visual effects of the wine will actually impact the way it feels in your, on your palate, the color, the, you know, the, the clarity, the, um, the depth of color, etc. Um, smelling to me is probably the most fun or the most the thing that most people at home can start practicing with is thinking about families of aromas that they smell. You don't have to pick out, you know, all these random aromas that people probably have never smelled in their lives. But just think about families of aromas, and it's going to help you identify maybe what you like. What, okay, this wine smells like blackberry. Oh, okay, I liked it. So. I can use that as an adjective when I go to a shop or go to a restaurant and I can say, oh, I had this great wine. I don't know where it was from, but it had this kind of like blackberry and smoky note. It was very dark in color and it had this nicely spiced finish, you know, and that's something anybody can say. And after just kind of learning those adjectives, then they can put those things into practice and, and taste and drink better. Uh, wherever they go. Getting back to the traditions around Burgundy wine, there's a place called the Bourne Hospice uh, in Bourne, and it has its own wine that it auctions off. Can you tell us about that? Indeed. Hospice de Bourne is an incredibly fascinating place. It's actually an old medieval hospital that was taking care of the sick, the poor um, sick people in the Burgundy area that had no one to care for them or had no money to to to, to care for them. And so they, they became one of the largest landowners in Burgundy and they owned a lot of vineyards and the vineyard usually came to them through a donation from a very prominent person. So there were a lot of wealthy merchants and landowners in Burgundy that would donate land in order to, to go to heaven. Essentially, they were doing this at all in, you know, the whole Catholic um, tradition of basically saying, here you go, here's some money or some land and, um, I want my free pass to, to, to heaven. Uh, and so over time, they became one of the largest landowners. They still own a lot of, of vineyards in Burgundy. And so the tradition became that they would make wine on that land and they would sell it each year at an auction, a nonprofit auction, and they would take all of the money and, and contribute it towards the hospital. It wasn't until I think the 60s or 70s that that place actually was no was not used as a hospital anymore. They now have a modern uh, building that's somewhere else, um, and you can visit this. But um, my one of my colleagues, her mother-in-law, was actually born there in the Hospice de Bonne, and she's still alive. She's like in her 70s. Amazing. So yeah, it was a working, functional hospital up until quite recently. And but this tradition of the of the auction goes on. And it takes place every year in November. Yeah, and it raises money not just for the hospital, but now it raises money for other hospitals from my understanding and other, other historical yeah, I think it's buildings, the, et cetera. Exactly. Yep. La Fondation des Hôpitaux de France, I think, is who it, it helps now. So the, Our listeners out there are planning their next trip to France and they want to visit uh, a winery in Burgundy. Uh, what, where do you recommend they go and when's the best time to visit? Any time is a good time to come, but I would recommend the summer and the fall. Uh, winter is very nice too, but it can be 
quite bleak and a bit cold, very a little gray and kind of humid and damp. It's perfectly nice to warm up by the fire with some wine and all that. But if you'd like to come and really spend some time outside, do some cycling or some walking or just, you know, eating out on terraces, etc. Um, summer and spring and fall are really the best times. Uh, the I would say that your home base should be in Bonn, which is a city of about 30,000 uh, people. So it's quite sizable, but it's really charming and has an old city center, very manageable. You don't need a car. You can walk everywhere. And from there, you can then use that as your base to head out to some of the vineyards. I do recommend hiring a car or getting a driver or booking a tour or something because it's most of the vineyards are not within walking distance. Um, there are tasting rooms and cellars you can visit right in Bone, but to go actually out into the vineyards, you need either a bike or a car to do so. Uh, and there's lots of great places to visit. And um, Chateau de Pomar, where, where I work, we're open every day of the year and, or almost every day of the year, but every day of the week, I should say. And, uh, we're one of the only places in Burgundy to really welcome visitors. Um, not a lot of, most of the vineyards in Burgundy are owned by small families and you have to call up, make an appointment. You can't just turn up in your car and just do a tasting. Whereas we do that. And there are a couple others like us. Chateau de Merceau is one as well that you can do. We always recommend booking in advance, but, um, it's, it's quite rare in Burgundy. It's not so much of developed wine culture like you'd have more in Australia or in California where you take a you know, you just make a stop at all these places along the way. Like you've got to plan ahead, book your tastings, go and um, run it really like, a, you know, um, a schedule. Um, Can you go to a winery at harvest time or should you go to a winery at harvest time? Can you help out picking grapes or is that not really your best tourist experience of visiting a French winery? In fact, it's in France, it's actually against the law for us to allow people to participate or to do work without getting paid in during the harvest. I like a little, maybe an hour or two here of just playing around in the vineyard and cutting a few bunches, that's fine. But actually working the harvest, you have to be officially employed. And so for foreigners, it's very hard. Uh, and so I wouldn't recommend it. And also it's a time when most winemakers are busy. And so those couple of weeks are incredibly hectic. The cities are very busy as well because you've got all these people coming there they need to be lodged and fed and everything and so it's it's not an ideal time uh, i would say just before or just after is really better since being part of master chef australia in 2013 i've been doing food tours and cooking classes with thousands of fabulous people it's fantastic to be able to show people delicious food and of course the people that make it that's why I'm super excited to announce new tours and classes here in France for the first time for me since COVID started. 2023 is your chance to come visit me here in Montmorillon and participate in cooking experiences that highlight the regional produce of this area and some of the wonderful dishes and ingredients discussed on Fabulously Delicious. I'm also doing a small group tour in Lyon in 2023 and then another fabulous Côte d'Azur tour in 2024. So check out my website via the link in the show notes, andrewpriorfabulously.com, for more information and register your interest now. I can't wait to cook with you and also in the future collaborate with some of the wonderful guests that have been on Fabulously Delicious that now you'll be able to come join me with and share their experience with them as well. So stay tuned. Merci beaucoup and let's get back to more Fabulously Delicious and Nouveau 
Beaujolais with Romain Tetu. Bon app. Roman Tattoo, thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. On to Beaujolais. For starters, what is Beaujolais wine? Beaujolais is a region. Sometimes you see how we say in France, uh, in, in France we name the wine by where they come from. Whereas in the new, new world where you come from, most of the time you refer to wine as a Pinot Noir or a Cabernet or a Chardonnay. That's the varietal. France, most of, most of French would not know what the varietal of a wine is, but they will know the name of the region it comes from. So Beaujolais is the region, is a region where we produce a wine that we call Beaujolais because it's, it's coming from there. So we're at the southern part of Burgundy, Burgundy, France. So just a few miles north of the city of Lyon, Beaujolais is a you could say it's the southern part of Burgundy, or it's a region on its own. It's about 30 miles uh, south to north, and about, about 10 to 15 miles wide. So it's quite, it's quite small. If you, let's say, okay, let's let's say you you have a friend coming over from from Australia, and they want to to, to visit France. Maybe you they they will land in, in Paris. Then you would say, okay, go east to Champagne, so right east of Paris, Champagne. Then you go south of Champagne, you're going to start being into to Burgundy. It's Côte de Nuit, Côte de Beaune, Côte Chalonnaise, all these, these uh, vineyards. And then you go into Beaujolais, which is really at the south, right next to, to Lyon. If you, if you leave Lyon within 15 to 20 minutes, you can see the first vineyards of, of Beaujolais north of Lyon. So we are, we are at the, um, at the, the Right, right between proper Burgundy and the region of Côte du Rhône, which starts just south of Lyon. I say in Beaujolais we produce mainly red wine. About 97, 95 to 97 percent of of what we produce is uh, is red wine, and it's a grape called Gamay Noir, which is a sibling of Pinot Noir. And then there's a Nouveau Beaujolais. What is this? Is this the same thing as Beaujolais or is it different? So Nouveau, since you must speak a little bit of French, Nouveau means new. So Beaujolais Nouveau means the new wine of Beaujolais. For example, this year we harvested in September and just two months after, we are drinking Beaujolais Nouveau on the third Thursday of November. So it's a French tradition. Beaujolais Nouveau is that it's a tradition where when you're a winemaker, you're going to bottle a part of the harvest right after, uh, right after you make it, instead of waiting for months before you bottle it. And you're going to celebrate the harvest. You're going to celebrate the first wine of the, of the harvest right in the middle of, of November when it's, we have short days. It's very, it's dark very early and everybody's depressed. We are going together, all together, all together in restaurants and bars and drink the first wine of the year to see how the vintage is going to be. So that's a French tradition. It started back in the early 1950s because at the time people were making um, races to go to to, the, to be the first to deliver the barrels of wine to the restaurants in Paris. So 
all the winemakers would leave on the, at the same time and rush to Paris to be the first to deliver the Beaujolais Nouveau. And when they did, everybody was shouting in the restaurant saying, saying the Beaujolais Nouveau est arrivé. It means the Beaujolais Nouveau has arrived. Typically, the, the, the wine that comes from Beaujolais, from, from this appellation of Beaujolais, most of the wines see no oak. Okay, when you uh, we age in in, in uh, what we call neutral vessels, so something that will not uh, not give taste to the wines, such as uh, oak barrels. Uh, what we do here is Beaujolais Nouveau. Let's take this analogy. You like cooking? You like baking? Sometimes when I bake a cookie, I I like the dough. Sometimes I eat the dough before I bake the cookie. Okay. That's the same thing with Nouveau. Nouveau is just like the dough that before you bake it, it's the first taste of what the cookie will be. And the cookie will be the, 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 the wine that you, you age like Beaujolais. So when you're a winemaker in Beaujolais region, in the southern part of Beaujolais, where most of Nouveau comes from, you're going to bottle a part of the wine and the, the other half, let's say, uh, approximately the, 50% approximately, you're going to age it and wait until January or February or March of the year after to bottle it, after it spent some time uh, to, to rest in your cellar. But it's not, it, it's not going to be aging in, in oak most of the time. The idea of Nouveau Beaujolais, is there other wines and wine regions that, that will rush to get wine out from its first harvest or is it specifically just for Beaujolais? So Nouveau is not specific to Beaujolais but Beaujolais made it famous. You have Nouveau wines from for example the Côte du Rhône even from even from Italy you have new wines from Italy you have a friend in Spain who makes a, a Nouveau as well. You now start to see winemakers in regions like Oregon or California who starts to make Nouveau. It's, it's just a style of wine, a way of making wine. So it's not proprietary to, to Beaujolais. But in Beaujolais, we made it famous, making it, uh, making it a global wine uh, event. You see, uh, we, we, we thought, okay, it's wine. It's all about sharing, being, bringing people together, being being together at the time of the year, gather and, and celebrate life and celebrate harvest. So, so we had all this, this uh, philosophy behind it that make it famous. And it is very famous. I mean, you can't, you, you can't be in France at this time of the year and not see signs saying, you know, that this uh, new, Nouveau Beaujolais is coming in two weeks or it's, uh, it's when it happens. So this episode will actually go to air on the day of Nouveau Beaujolais, which is what day in November every year? It's the third Thursday of November. I think it's the 18th this year. Is that right? This year it's the 18th. When do you drink Beaujolais wine? At breakfast with my cereals. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what type of cereal goes with Nouveau Beaujolais wine? Uh, <laughs> any? <laughs> any, any, any. No, I, I would, you, you know, the, the, what's great about Beaujolais is that it's, it's such a friendly and versatile, oh, sorry, sorry, let me say that again. It's such a friendly and versatile wine. 
it goes well with anything. It's good on its own. Let's say with, with, you're with your loved one and you want to just have a, a glass of wine with nothing else but a, I don't know, a, a show on Netflix, for example. A glass of Beaujolais will make it. If you're, if you want to have uh, food from, from, from light food to more serious food, food, it will also go well with it. It will pair. So Beaujolais from the lighter style of wine of Beaujolais, like Beaujolais Nouveau or the simple Beaujolais to something more structured that we call Cru Beaujolais. Maybe you've heard of names like Morgon, Fleury or Juliana which are more complex in structure and age-worthy, Beaujolais can go well with anything. It's, it's not the type of wine that's over... Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes wines can be uh, very high in alcohol or have very big tannins or being very uh, big, big guys. Beaujolais Nouveau is more delicate, elegant, more subtle and and because of that, because of that aromatic components and that acidity of the wine, it will go well with any type of food. And what I love about Beaujolais is that it's a wine that makes me want to drink another glass and makes me want to, to, to eat. You see, sometimes wine is just too much and it masks the flavors of the food. Here with Beaujolais, it's the opposite. The French often refer to it as a table wine. Why is that? What do what do they mean by being a table wine? Um, you see, table wine. It, maybe it's because it sits on the table of the family table any time of uh, of the year. It's not a special occasion like champagne. Uh, and it's to me, I, I embrace that uh, because it, there is no better place than being on, on the family's table. Uh, or to be with your friends, you don't have to. It's not some a wine that's overly pretentious. Uh, some, uh, it's a wine that's um, approachable. I will not use the word simple because it's it can be very sophisticated, Beaujolais, but it's very approachable, and it's a wine that makes you want to share with other people. So maybe it's it's why people say it's a table wine is because it's 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 on your your family's table. Um, can you cook with uh, Nouveau Beaujolais or the Beaujolais wine? Yeah, you can cook with it. Um, if you mean that the cook can have a drink while he's cooking. I was joking. <laughs> you can do, yes, you can cook with, with everything you would do with a Pinot Noir. Like, uh, you know the oeuf omelette? You know that? Uh, it's, it's a soft-boiled egg cooked in, in a wine sauce. It's very famous in Burgundy. You can do that with, with, with a Beaujolais. You can do a, um, a big bourguignon with Beaujolais. Maybe you call it a, a big Beaujolais. Or you can also do a, a coq au vin with, with Beaujolais. So, and, and something I really like, it's, a, it's unusual, you can do a sorbet with Beaujolais. So when you finish your dessert, you have a little sorbet of Beaujolais. It's delicious. I'm going to have to try that one. With the Nouveau Beaujolais, are you supposed to drink it now? Like, can you keep it? Is it a wine that you sell up? It's not intended to be seller. It's, it's meant, it's a season, seasonal wine. Doesn't mean that it's going to, to turn bad after a few months. It will certainly be 
very good after a few months, maybe a year. You know, sometimes you can have all the Beaujolais Nouveau. It's it's really good, but it's it's not it's not meant for it. It's meant to be enjoyed young and during the season. It's like it's, I don't know if you if you're if you have any specialty, for example, um, like a special Christmas cake you would do in Australia. Nothing prevents you from from having it uh, in in the middle of August, but it's just not meant to be at the time. If you'd like to support the making of Fabulously Delicious, then there are many ways to do this. One of the ways is through Patreon, the link for which is in the show notes for this episode. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you will receive exclusive content just for you. It's a great way you can support me and the podcast so that I can bring you more fabulous French foodies. What's the name of the winery that you work with now? So I'm very fortunate to work for George Dubuff Winery. We are a family-owned and operated winery based in Beaujolais, France. So obviously they do Beaujolais wines. Uh, what other wines do you do? So we do mostly mostly Beaujolais. Uh, that's because that's where we are. Uh, so we have we work with twelve appellations of Beaujolais, Beaujolais, Beaujolais Village, and the ten crews of Beaujolais. So that's already a lot of wines. And within each appellation, we represent many small uh, small wineries, small domains and estates, and represent them in France and all, all over the world. Beyond Beaujolais, we are also famous for our Maconnet wines. Maconnet is where the family, the Dubuff family, comes from. And Maconnet is a, is a white wine producing region where we produce mostly Chardonnay. And what makes the wines from Georges Dubuff better than other wines in the area? I don't think it's better than, than others. It's just, uh, it's just different because we have so many great winemakers in Beaujolais, uh, it would be uh, pretentious to, to say we're better than, than them. But um, let's say it's, 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 it's different. We have our style of wine. We like wine that are approachable, that are uh, a good sense of fruit, but also a sense of place. So we like something that's easy drinking and makes you want to have another glass. But at the same time, we like to showcase the specificity of each appellation, each terroir. So we don't want all the wines to taste the same. We want them to reflect the place they are coming from and the style of the work of the winemaker. How long have they been making wine? So, so George Dubuff founded the company in 1964. He passed away at the beginning of 2020. He was a fantastic fantastic gentleman, a great, a great human being, beyond being a, a very famous, a very successful businessman. He was uh, such a humble and, and, and great human being. Uh, I've been very fortunate to, to work with him very closely. But um, we, um, yeah, we've been making wine since the, I, I guess, as long as you can find the Dubuff on the, the face of the earth, he, will, he, he, he was probably made already making wine because they've been in the region for over 400 years. What's the town that you're in there um, uh, where the George de Boeuf wines are? So we're in Romanèche-Torrance. It's a, it's a fairly small town, but it, it's, it's the town where there is one of the most famous vineyards in Beaujolais called Moulin Avant, where you find this Cru Beaujolais I was talking, uh, telling you about this more. Uh, 
world-class wine of Beaujolais. So Beaujolais, something you, to, to understand is that it can go from very simple, simple, unpretentious, festive wine like Beaujolais Nouveau to very sophisticated and really world-class wine like Moulin Vent, that's where our town is, in romanes Torin. And if you come to visit us, I hope you will, you will see we have a wonderful wine museum called Le Hameau du Vin, where you can learn about the history of winemaking in Beaujolais and Maconnais. And it's, it's very fun. You can spend the whole day and, and learn a lot about uh, the region and winemaking. It's, it's worth the trip. Apart from wine, what else is there in that area, in that town and, and uh, region for people to check out? We are very focused on wine in Beaujolais, but there's so many things to, to, to see. The landscapes are uh, amazing in Beaujolais. A lot of people that I've, I've welcomed to Beaujolais told me how, how surprised they were about how beautiful it is. It's, it, some, some people say it's the French Tuscany because it's, it's small rolling hills with small medieval villages on top of the hills surrounded by, by, by vineyards. It's, it's really gorgeous. So the architecture, the history, the, the landscapes are worth the trip. Even if you don't drink, don't drink wine, you'd be delighted to, to visit Beaujolais. Do you export a lot of wine around the world? We do, yeah, we do as much as we uh, as we can. Uh, we export to many countries, including uh, the US, the Canada, UK, all parts of Europe, and uh, and Japan. A lot in Japan. Japan. What's this? A huge interest in French wine, Japan. I think they they love Beaujolais Nouveau. They. Do. And I, I can imagine why, you know, it, it really goes well with the cuisine and the sophistication of their cuisine. Um, so it's, it's, a very, it's a love story between Japan and, and Beaujolais. Yeah, well, I have a, a love affair with Japan. If I was married to France, Japan would be my mistress. <laughs> For sure. Uh, I love that. Um, but yes, actually, I can think of in relation to Japanese food and how you described how Beaujolais goes with food and in is an easy, uh, a very uh, good wine to drink, um, especially for the table. And I can imagine that it would go with Japanese food quite well. Can we actually visit the winery? And if so, what can we do there? So you, you definitely come visit us at George Dubuff. So we are... Uh, as I say, we have this this um, this wine museum, but it's more than that. It's, it's almost a, a theme theme park. It's uh, it's for the whole family because we figured when you come and and some of you may not drink or uh, maybe you come with um, with kids, so we want everybody to the whole family to have a good time. So you you have the wine museum. You have also a beautiful garden. Um, garden and, and lots of things to do you can actually visit inside our winery so that's a fun part at Dubuff is you, 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 you let's say you come in September when we are making wine you have access to the winery so you can see the winemaker working you can see how it works uh, and and you can really understand how wine is made so we we believe that uh, we should be open to the world and we we really like to welcome people and and show them how we how we do things in Beaujolais and welcome them. You know, a lot of 
wine places in the world, you go there and you have to pay for a fee before you can taste anything or taste wine. Or sometimes you may be, uh, can I say, um, maybe a little bit shy or it, it may be uh, intimidating. That's the word I'm looking for you. It may be intimidating sometimes to, to enter a winery. In Beaujolais, and not only Dubuff, every Beaujolais winemaker I know are very simple, humble, and welcoming people. They open their door, you can go there, have fun, talk to the winemaker, taste their wine, and really have an experience where, unlike any other, or not, not like other parts of, of France, where it's very expensive wine, and, and, and people are more aristocratic than anything. Uh, here in Beaujolais, it's very humble, simple people. You, you just go there and, and make friends with the, the winemakers. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Summer Series of Fabulously Delicious, the French Food Podcast. Next week, we are checking out some of the little known outside of France regional specialties. So, come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French Food Podcast. And as I always say, remember, whatever you do, do it fabulously. Bon app, everyone. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.